Last time we were together, um, we began to think a little bit about the topic of prayer. Uh, and we tried to see if we could find uh, answers in the New Testament to some of the questions that uh, surround the matter of prayer and can even on times confuse or indeed discourage believers. And this morning, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to think about two more of those questions. The first is this, should I persist in prayer? When is it right to persevere in asking God for something? And when should I accept that God's answer is no and stop asking? That's the question that we now come to consider. On the one hand, there are many who say that uh, success in prayer is for those who persist. For if you ask God uh, persistently, God will honour your faithful perseverance and grant you what you, what you uh, have asked for. But on the other hand, there are those who point out that that was not Paul's experience. That Paul asked God three times uh, to remove his thorn in the flesh. And God responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you, thereby making it clear that nothing would be achieved by uh, continued asking. Others will warn us to be careful for you can ask God for what it is not his will to give you. If you ask often enough, he may give it to you, to your hurt. And the example that they advance is the experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness when they asked for meat, uh, and God gave them meat, but uh, with the meat came death. So, what are we to make of it? How are we to understand the matter of persistence in prayer? To help us answer that question, uh, I would suggest that we think about a couple of parables that Christ told in the book of Luke, uh, which speak to this matter and see if we can learn anything uh, that would help us. First of all, in Luke chapter 11, there's the parable of the uh, shameless host Let's read it together, please. Luke 11, verses 5 to 8. He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is shut. I've, uh, my children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In this parable, Jesus speaks about life in the ancient East. A man had an unexpected guest in the middle of the night. Problem was, he had no food to set before that uh, guest. And because of the shame of his inability, he goes to his friend, wraps his door, and asks for some food. His friend is in bed 
with his family and he rather gruffly replies, uh, I can't get up and give you any food. Just go away. But because of the shame of failing to provide a food for his guest, the man refuses, the host refuses to, to, to take no for an answer and just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking until he's utterly shameless in his knocking until finally his friend gets up and gives him the food he needs, not because of their friendship, but because the man is absolutely persistent in asking. And the lesson is that we must persist in prayer. We must never give up. We must just keep asking and asking and asking. But I would suggest we need to be careful what it is we persist in prayer for. For Jesus is not saying we should persist in asking for everything. But that we must persist in asking shamelessly and persistently for one thing in particular. Note verse 13 as Jesus applies his parable. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the lesson Jesus is teaching, I would suggest, in this parable is that we must be utterly shamelessly persistent when asking God to give us the Holy Spirit. But some will object, but surely we who are believers don't need to ask that God would give us the Holy Spirit. We received the Holy Spirit the moment we were saved. And of course, that's perfectly true. But does that mean that we believers don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit in any sense? That can't be correct either. For Paul prays persistently for, the, for exactly that for the Ephesian believers. You remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then in chapter 3 of that same book, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. So Paul is here praying for the enlightenment and the strengthening of the believers' hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul is praying persistently that the Ephesian believers may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they may be strengthened with power through the Spirit, and we should pray equally persistently for these same things for ourselves and for our fellow believers. So I would suggest that this should be the substance of our persevering prayers. But we need to pause for a moment before we move on. Jesus tells us that we must pray persistently, shamelessly even, that God will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And from Paul we learn what it is we will receive from the Holy Spirit when God answers our prayers as he must surely do. Says Paul we will receive the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation. But the question we need to think about before we move on is this. What will the spirit of wisdom and revelation teach us when God gives it to us in answer to our persevering prayer? Paul answers that question in the first chapter of the Ephesian letter. Let me read what he says. Verse 17 of Ephesians 1, that, God of our, the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that you may know one. What is the hope to which he has called you? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? So, <clears throat> we need the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we will come to know three things, says Paul. First, the hope to which God has called us. Two, what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immense greatness of God's power towards us who believe. Now, to understand those things is a study in itself. But let me just say a couple of things before we leave it. First, we need the Spirit. First, we need the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we will understand the hope of God's calling. Now, as believers, we know we are bound for glory. We are bound for heaven. We know that. But Paul is praying here that the Holy Spirit will make that hope of heaven so gloriously real in our hearts that it will transform our, our, our sense of proportion so that all else pales into insignificance by comparison. For how common it is that we believers get dragged down by the petty details of this life so that it drains us of our sense of the wealth to which we have been called, the eternal wealth of reigning with Jesus Christ. How much time and thought and even prayer do we spend as believers on what is merely temporal and passing, so that we are in danger of losing our sense of proportion of what is lasting and eternal. We, we are in danger of losing our sense of proportion of what, of, of the fact that we have a divine calling to incalculable riches and eternal responsibilities. Says Paul, we need to have our sense of proportion sharpened by a realization of the hope of his calling. So that we will be able to see the passing nature of life's problems and difficulties in light of that hope of his calling. It's all about proportion, you see, says Paul. And secondly, we need to know, says Paul, the, the gift of the Spirit, so we understand the power of God that is towards us. 
Paul tells us we need the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation so that we grasp the power of God that is ours. So that we grasp something of the divine power that God has made available to us now and eternally. For if I could grasp the enormity of that, all that stands against me would pale into insignificance. And I would, in reality, cry with Paul, if God is for me, and he is, who can stand against me? What confidence, what glorious liberty the spirit of wisdom and revelation would give us did we grasp it. So, we are all on a journey, aren't we? We have but little time left in this world. And we need to live the rest of our days with the reality of the hope of his calling and the greatness of his power that is towards us, ringing in our ears, controlling our living. But if that is to be our experience, if we are to live in the glorious realization of these things, we will need to call on God for the gift of the Holy Spirit with shameless persistence and unshakable perseverance. But there's another parable that Jesus told, this time about a widow and a judge in Luke 18. And, and Paul, in the very first verse of the, or Christ in the very first verse of his parable, makes it clear why he's telling the story. He told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart, that they should shamelessly persist in prayer. Listen to the parable, verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet this widow keeps bothering me. I'll give her justice so that she'll not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In a particular city, there's a widow. And the men of that city treat her unjustly. So she goes to the judge and she pleads with the judge to take up her case and see that justice is done. For a while, the judge ignores her. But she wouldn't give up. She just comes and keeps coming. Avenge me of our adversary, she cries. See the justice is done, she cries. And in the end, the judge says, I suppose I better do something. Not because I care for justice, but to get this woman off my back. 
So he avenges her. He gets justice for her. Now, this parable, again, is misunderstood. It's understood to be simply an encouragement to persist in prayer when, so that God will give you what you ask for. As though the secret of making God act is to make a nuisance of yourself. But you'll notice what Jesus says when he comes to apply the parable. Verses 7 and 8. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. The parable has to do with one specific request. We are to be persistently persevering over one specific matter. And it is that God would give justice to his elect. That God would avenge them of their adversary. But some will argue, but surely as believers, we are not to ask God to avenge us of our adversaries. Surely, surely we are to ask God to, for, to forgive our enemies like Christ did. But we need to think for a moment. When Jesus asked God to forgive on the cross, we need to be clear who it was, in fact, he was asking be forgiven. Listen to him pray again. Father, he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ is praying specifically for the Roman soldiers, I would suggest, who didn't know what they were doing. For them, this crucifixion was another crucifixion among a hundred that they'd already done. They had no idea who, who, who they were crucifying. They had no idea who he was doing. They didn't know what they were doing. Christ did not ask for forgiveness for those who did know what they were doing. Peter tells us, Peter lets us see into the mind and the thoughts of Christ when it came to those whom, who did know what they were doing, who did know that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he reviled, says Peter, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Picture the scene. Before unjust councils and courts, Jesus is beaten and mocked and ultimately crucified by those who knew full well what they did and what they were doing. Jesus did not revile or threaten, however. What a terrible thing it would have been if in those moments he had threatened planet earth would have would, would have been blown to smithereens would have would, would have crumbled beneath their feet however though at that moment he neither reviled nor threatened do you think that in those moments jesus was saying in his heart oh well it doesn't really matter i don't mind what they do to me no sense in worrying about the injustice of it all of course he wasn't Peter tells us, as I've already read to you, 
the secrets of Christ's heart in those moments? What was going through Christ's mind when he was being treated unjustly? He continued, says Peter, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus went to the cross, with all its awful injustice, in, he went in the unshakable conviction that God is a God of justice. That there would be a day of final judgment when all earth's wrongs, including the crucifixion, will be put right. That God will judge righteously and in that confidence our Lord could leave it all to God to deal with. And that set him free from the need to threaten and revive. And there's a lesson in this for us, is there not? This is a cruelly unjust world. We've already been thinking about it this morning. In many countries, believers suffer dreadfully for their faith. And some die for the name of Christ. Even in the West, believers, for instance, who are not prepared to cheat in business are themselves cheated very often. For persecution for Christ can take many different forms. But Jesus assures us that God will see to it that justice is done for his children. It may not be done in this life. It may be done in this life, though more often than not it will not be done in this life. But if it is not done in this life, it will be done in the next. Do you think that when the wronged believer who has not seen justice done in this life stands before God at the great assize, that God will say to him, oh well, it doesn't matter. Just forget life's injustices. They're neither here nor there. Of course he won't. There will be that great assize when all sin will be judged, when all injustices will be put right, when the sentence of judgment will be passed on every unrepentant sinner. And since that is so, we believers can with persistence and perseverance call on God that justice be done. We can leave it to God, for he has promised to see justice done speedily. Moreover, our persistence in prayer is a reflection of our estimate of the character of God. So scripture encourages the believer to persevere, to, to persevere in praying to God. To pray that God will avenge him of his enemies. That God will see justice done. But suppose after persevering for some time the believer does not see justice done and so gives up praying. What does that say about the believer's opinion of the character of God? Let's go back to the parable. The judge in the story was an unprincipled rascal. But even he could be moved eventually by the persistence of the widow. But if we believers eventually give up praying to God for justice, because we feel that there's no point in praying anymore because God isn't listening, then we are saying that God is even more unprincipled than the judge in the story. But there is a God. 
And if he is to be the bedrock of our faith, we must hold that he cares about justice and fairness. And that he will in every case see justice is done one day. And how will we show our unshakable belief? Surely by persevering in our prayer for justice, even if we never see justice done in this life. Revelation 6 has a poignant scene. When the angel opened the fifth seal, we are told, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These saints had suffered injustice all down through the centuries. Persistently, day by day, they had pleaded with God to take up their case. Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, they cried. But they had lived and died generation after generation, crying persistently for justice, but justice had not been done till now. Revelation 9 tells us that when their incense-enshrouded prayers ascended to God on that occasion, amid thunder and rumblings and lightnings and earthquakes, judgment falls. The persistent prayers of the persecuted saints are answered at last. And this has been the problem that troubled the hearts of suffering believers down through history. The silence of God. Why does God not hear? In first century Jerusalem and Rome, in Nazi concentration camps, in the gulags of Russia, in the killing fields of Cambodia, in Ukraine today, why is God silent? Why is there no justice? until the perseverance in prayer of the saints is sorely tested to its limit. But we need not fear. God's appointed day is already marked on his divine calendar when God will take his great power and reign. Whatever are our trials and injustices in this ungodly world, however long the silence we can with confidence persevere in prayer for God will avenge his people. And in the meantime, like our blessed Lord, when we are reviled, let us not revile again. When we suffer, let us not threaten, for we can rest content. Justice will be done in God's time. So in conclusion, let us as children of the living God persevere in prayer, be utterly shameless in praying as we ask God for the gift of the Holy Spirit and that justice will be done for those who have suffered for his name. For God will answer our shameless praying in his time and for his glory. One last question. How can we pray with authority?
If I'm going to be an effective servant for God, I must pray with authority. And if I'm to pray with authority, my faith must be strong and unwavering. You'll recall the incident when Jesus came down from the mountain. You remember he had to heal the child because the disciples were, were unable to do so. The disciples come and say, why could we not heal that child? And he says, because of your defective faith. Because if you had even a grain of real, of real faith, you could move a mountain. And he repeats that. You remember when he, when he uh, cursed the fig tree? He said to his disciples, uh, after he had cursed the fig tree, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have it, and you've received it. So faith, the faith that is required, if we are to pray with authority, must have absolute confidence that what we ask for will be done. But when people read verses like that, they get kind of worried. The person who's praying for salvation is tempted to think that salvation will be impossible because he doesn't have that unshakable faith that seems to be required. Or in the midst of life's difficulties and hardships, believers may think that, be tempted to think that prayer is of no avail because they don't have the resolute, because of their difficulties, they don't have the resolute faith that seems to be required. But we must understand that when it comes to prayer that asks for salvation, or that is offered by the believer in the midst of life's difficulties and hardships. Faith is not a work that must be done 100% perfectly. For that would make faith a work of merit and not faith at all. Do you remember when the father brought his child, another father brought another child, to Christ and, and ask Christ to heal the child. And Christ says, everything's possible to those who have faith. The, the poor man said, look, I, I believe, but, but help, my, help my unbelief. He didn't know whether he believed or not. Now, it's interesting that Christ didn't say to the father, well, now, that's too bad. Because you and your child will have to go away and not come back until you've worked up 100% confidence that I can heal your, that I, that I, that I can heal your son. Christ just healed the child. And it's good to know that in the matter of salvation, in all life's difficulties and doubts, God loves us and will hear and answer our prayers in spite of our defective faith. But when it comes to my work and service for God, that's another matter entirely. For then I will need to pray with authority, which rests on unshakable faith. And that's just the problem. Where does that unshakable faith come? How am, how am I to be 100% convinced that when I ask God for something, I will get it? Where does that How does it work? Well, three times in the upper room, Christ deals with exactly this matter and explains 
The first occasion is in John, uh, in John 14. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do, work, do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Who, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Here Jesus is telling the disciples that the time will come. Did you notice it? That the time will come, then they will, then, that they will be called upon to do greater works. Works that will glorify the Father in us. And he, said, he says, you've been doing work. You've been serving me. But when I leave you, you will be required to do even greater works. And then he makes the promise and he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But the promise that Jesus gives to do anything is a promise to give the believer anything he needs to be able to do the greater works that he will ask them to do. John 15, the, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here in this situation, on this second occasion, Jesus is telling his disciples that although it is true that they have borne fruit, the fruit of a Christ-like life, the time will come when they will be required to bear more fruit. They, were required, they will be required in John 14, he says, to do greater works. John 15, you will be required to, to, to bear more fruit. And then he makes the promise Ask what you will, and whatever you ask, it will be done for you. But the promise to do anything is the promise to give the believer anything he needs to be able to bear more fruit. John 16, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me, but truly I say, ask whatever, uh, ask whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, Christ is speaking in the context of his coming resurrection and ascension. The work that they would be required to do, he has already told them. And he says that, and, and he has given them details of what they will need to do that work. He says, John 16, I am, I am going. I am going back to my Father. I have told you the work that I'm leaving you to do. I have told you what you will need to be able to do that work. Now he makes them a promise that whatever they need to do the work, whatever is required to enable them to do the work, he will give that to them. Do you understand the pattern? This is not, these are not open-ended promises. Ask anything that takes your fancy and, 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 I, and I'll give it to you. These promises are limited strictly to the context in which the promise is made. Jesus is leaving them that very night. 
When he goes, they will be required to do greater works than they've ever done before. They will be required to bear more fruit than they've ever borne before. But he's leaving us. How are we going to do greater works and bear more fruit when he's gone? And Christ is assuring them. He is saying them, yes, things will get difficult. But if I, since I have required you to do greater works, since you will be required to bear more fruit, you have this promise from me myself that whatever you need to do those greater works, to bear that more fruit, all you have to do is ask. And if it means moving a mountain, no problem. But do you understand, how can I pray with authority? How can I pray with utter confidence and know that what I ask for, I will have? If God has given me a work to do, if God has given you a work to do, if God has called on you to bear more fruit, to bear much fruit, then when you ask, if what you ask for is necessary to do that work, to bear that fruit, you can ask with absolute confidence that your prayer will be granted. What glorious confidence. Has God called you into his service? Has God given you a work to do for him? He says, though I am not here, you can come to me and to do the work that I have given you to do, you can ask and I will give you everything you need to do that work. Does God's work seem to overpower you? It needn't. Because whatever you need, you have his word that he will do it. What glorious confidence. What unshakable assurance these promises given by our blessed Lord himself give to us believers who seek to live our days for him. Should I persist in prayer? I must pray with shameless perseverance for the gift of the Holy Spirit that justice will be done for those who suffer in his name. How can I pray with authority? If God has given me a work to do, then I can be utterly confident that he will give me everything I need to do that work, even if it means moving a mountain or two. So may God encourage us, grant us the wisdom and the boldness in these things for his glory and our eternal good. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.